Thanks for joining us on the Hope Podcast. Hope Community Church exists to love people where they are and help them grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. By pursuing this relationship together, we can change the world. Hey, when you're done listening to this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free app. From there, you can find all of our recent message content. Our app is actually the best place to keep up with everything going on at Hope. If you like what you hear today, we encourage you to share this with your friends or family. Enjoy. Well, how we doing, Hope? We doing good? Welcome to those of you in the room, to those of you at some of our physical campuses. And what's up to our online crowd? I have not said hey to you in like weeks and weeks and weeks. Doesn't mean we don't love you. We love our online family, don't we? Let's show them some love. I check in from time to time. Well, we are in the week two of uh, Asking for a Friend series. And it's where we ask you guys, what are the burning questions that you have about religion, about the Bible? What are some questions that come up in conversations you have about religion with your coworkers and neighbors? And you guys sent hundreds of questions in and uh, we are doing our best to answer them. This week, I'm gonna tell you the question up front. We're answering the question, does science contradict religion? Uh, does the scientific data that we have disprove the claims of Christianity? And I'll tell you, we got a ton of questions on this topic. I was actually surprised by how many and how serious they were. So I just want to acknowledge up front that there's, there's some emotion tied to this topic. And a lot of you see this as a real big hurdle. So I'm praying for some big things this weekend. And we got it on both sides. Like there's some, uh, some of you that said, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christ follower. I believe in God. I've been faithful for decades, but people just keep coming at me with this scientific facts and this data saying this disproves the very thing that I built my life on. So does it really do that? Or should I kind of be afraid of science or stay away from it? And others of you are like, hey, I kind of came from a scientific background and I'm kind of on the fence. I want to believe in the God of the Bible. I want to believe in Jesus. I'm a little on the fence, but this, this, is, a, this is an actual hurdle that is stopping me. And so we want to do our best to answer that. I am not a scientist. Uh, I am a pastor, but I met with scientists. Some of them are in the room right now. I consulted a lot of books and we're going to let them speak. And uh, hopefully I'll use the words that they would intend their words to be used. But where we're going to end up is no, in fact, science doesn't contradict uh, religion. There's billions of people that think that. And uh, science actually fits nicely with Christianity. And in fact, kind of reveals uh, some of God's glory just in the intricacy and in the order that he created the universe. It really doesn't cause us to doubt, but causes us to worship. And it actually can increase our faith. That's one conclusion that millions of people have drawn from the scientific data that we have. And this idea that science is only on the side of atheism or naturalism is just not true. That, that in and of itself is, is one of the hundreds of conclusions that people have drawn from the scientific data that we have. Here's, here's how I would put it, all right? I want you to go on an imaginary journey with me, and uh, you're going to join me on my commute to work on a normal everyday Tuesday, all right? You picture it. I got a gray Toyota Tacoma, so we're hopping in that thing. We need to get to work on time because we have staff meeting at 9 a.m. here at Hope Community Church, and if we're late, Jason Gore will be, get mad at us. So uh, we're going to hop in the Tacoma. We're going to get on Highway one north, uh, the same way that I've driven almost every single Tuesday morning since like 2009. And as we're nearing the exit for Walnut Street, um, which is where our Raleigh campus is, all of a sudden we hear a loud bang. And then we hear a flop, 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 flop. And the car starts to shake in unison with those noises, shake in rhythm with those noises. Now, immediately, both of us, you and I, we would start to make up a story in our head. We heard something 
we felt something, we observed something, and we need to make sense of it. We need to formulate a story that fits. Now, there's actually hundreds of different stories that we could come up with that would make sense and they could be super crazy. And so I came up with some crazy ones. You ready? Uh, maybe there is a little tiny deer, like the deer that's going to be on screen. Oh, look at the little Bambi. And uh, it got scared. It's running away from a predator and it, it somehow ran through a puddle of super glue and just got soaked. And then it ran out on the highway. And as soon as it did, it hit my tire. That's the bang that we heard. And it got stuck there. It got super glued to my tire. So now every time the tire poor deer revolves. We just run over that deer carcass time and time again. And that's causing the flop flop. That's causing the shaking. That could be a legitimate story. Or it could be that one of my neighbor's uh, pet monkeys got out of the house. And this monkey absolutely loves fireworks. we got a picture of monkeys with fireworks. Yeah. Maybe like a pet monkey, like, like uh, Ross from Friends, right? And it's been hiding under my vehicle the whole time. And it just waited till about my exit to light that firework. It was one of his favorites. So that's the bang that we heard. And now he's jumping up in glee and joy. And that's what we're feeling. That's why the car's shaking. That could work. You never know. Or maybe there was a car beside us and we didn't notice it. But he had a gun that can shoot condensed beams of microwaves. These are real things. We got a picture of a microwave gun. And uh, he pointed it at my tire for about a mile or two. It heated up the gas inside my tire and it just expanded so much the tire blew up. And that's what we experienced. Or I could have run over a nail and just have a normal flat tire. And we could keep going. There could be hundreds and hundreds of different hypotheses or stories that we could make up that would make sense of what we observed in my truck. But the only way to really figure out what happened is to what? To pull over and to look, to investigate, right? We have to look at the facts and based on that, choose which story or which hypothesis fits better. Now, if there's no little small super glue soaked deer carcass, right? We can rule that out. If there's no like soot covered monkey that's doing like his happy firework dance, right? We can move that out. If the, if the tire's not very warm to the touch, we can kind of rule out the microwave gun. Or um, if, we, if, there, if we see a nail, guess what? We know. If there's a nail stuck in my flat tire, we know the nail hypothesis fits, right? Because we have proof. But what if there's no nail? What if there's no nail, people? Like, what if, what if there's no absolute proof either way? Well, then it could be the microwave gun or it could be the nail. But we can't know for sure without that nail. We can never know for sure. We'll never be able to put like the nail in the coffin of one theory or the other. So we have to choose which one is most likely, which one fits. And you think, well, the choice is obvious. It's a nail, duh, but it's not that obvious. Our choice on which story we kind of have faith in or jump to depends on all the experiences that we've had throughout our lifetime. So if you're like me, who's run over like six different nails and had six different flat tires, yeah, I'm going with that hypothesis. But there are people in this country that work for the U.S. Army developing microwave guns. That's true. I looked it up. And so they got to test those things somewhere. And what if you work in that office and one of your coworkers just really likes to play pranks on people? I don't know. Maybe the microwave gun is the more uh, correct hypothesis for you. See, two people can look at the exact same event, the exact same set of facts, and will walk away with two totally different conclusions. And that's because the beliefs that we have, they strongly influence the beliefs that we form, okay? The beliefs we already have strongly influence 
the beliefs that we form. And I believe that's what's happening uh, with this conversation about science and Christianity. I think um, that it's not really true that science is pitted against Christianity. That's never really been the case um, until the Enlightenment. I mean, Christians were the ones that actually pursued scientific inquiry. Um, but I think two reasons that we kind of, our, our culture believes that there's the new atheist movement that doesn't like religion at all, and so it's going to attack it. But also the media, like when they tell stories about in vitro fertilization or debates about teaching evolution in school, that sort of stuff. Uh, when they tell those stories, there has to be a protagonist and an antagonist, a bad guy and a good guy. And so I think that we have kind of an overinflated sense of, of this science versus Christianity. In fact, there's more than two things going on, okay? What we have is really three things. We have the scientific data we have uh, the way that the world works, that our current thinking on that. We have the facts about the universe and about biology and all that sort of stuff. And then we have two conclusions based off of that same data. Religion, on the one hand, we're going to go with Christianity for obvious reasons. Uh, that's a conclusion that millions and millions of people think fit with the scientific data that we have. I actually had lunch with a marine microbiologist. He's in the room. There's a lot more words in that title, but I can't pronounce them. Uh, but science was actually a big reason that he came to faith. And he actually said now the science that he does um, doesn't decrease his faith, but makes him more thankful and more worshipful of the God that he serves. So that's, that's one conclusion. And then there's a second conclusion that, that also a lot of people would draw, and I'll call this naturalism. Everyone say naturalism still with me. All right. Uh, some people use the word humanism. They're basically the same, but it's belief that there is no God. All there is in the universe is what we can see and what we can touch and what we can measure. There's no supernatural forces. There's only natural laws and forces operating in the universe. And once we get there where we say, okay, there's three things, there's the data and there's two conclusions. Now we can have a conversation. Now we can have a conversation. So what I want to do the next 45 minutes, I'm just kidding, is uh, I want to compare Christianity to the data. Does it match up? Is there anything in the data that just disproves Christianity? Or is there anything in there that actually stacks the deck towards Christianity? And then I want to compare naturalism with the data and say, is there anything there that disproves this? Or is there anything there that, that makes this a probability? And then I want to step away from the data because there's only so much that science can tell us. And I wanna actually look at the whole entire experience of being a human being with our emotions and our relationships, and then say with all of that in mind, which story is a more likely fit? You guys up for that? Yeah? You're gonna have to put your thinking cap on for a little bit, but it'll be good. So the first question is, does the Bible or does Christian belief, does that really fit with the scientific data? And in the questions that you guys submitted, you were really concerned with evolution, uh, you're really concerned with the Big Bang, uh, concerned with the age of the earth and dinosaurs. I got so many questions about dinosaurs. I don't know why. So does Christianity really fit with that? And the answer is yes. Christian belief does fit with the scientific data that we have. And I kind of know this because there's millions of scientists that are also Christians and they're smart people. So Christianity is a reasonable conclusion that you can draw from the data that we have. There's a leader of the New Atheist Movement, Dawkins, that says that is not the case whatsoever. If you believe in science, there's no way you could believe in God. Well, one of his atheist friends was like, well, either half of my scientific colleagues are idiots or the science that we have is compatible with religion 
and it's equally compatible with naturalism. And I think that's the case. Um, but what about Genesis? That's what you guys are going to ask. What about Genesis chapters one and two, the biblical creation account? Has that been proven wrong by science? And again, I would say no. When it comes to those two chapters, Genesis one and two, there's a continuum of belief amongst Christians, meaning there's a range of beliefs about these chapters that are viable and that are reasonable and that don't go against the text. Don't start sending me an email yet. All right, listen, listen to me. Some Christians believe, some do, um, that God created life, that he had a hands-on approach, but that he used evolution to accomplish that. I'm not one of those. Okay, stop your email. But there are some Christians uh, that do believe that. The Catholic Church has actually put out um, official pronouncements that evolution, yeah, it's compatible with Christian belief. So some Christians believe in evolution as a process, but they don't think that it explains everything that we feel and see and do as human beings. So there's a group of them. There's also many Christians that don't believe in evolution, or I, I should say we, uh, they believe in microevolution, that species change over time to adapt to the environments. That's how we get all the different dog breeds and how, why certain horses look different than others. The biologist in the room is laughing right now, but, um, <laughs> but not macroevolution where one species turns into another species. They don't believe in that. So of those that don't believe in evolution, there's three basic approaches uh, to the first two chapters in Genesis. And this is a really condensed view. Um, the first one is young earth theory. Uh, so some would say that Genesis 1 and 2 is meant to be read literally, so that God created the heavens and the earth in seven literal 24-hour days. And you can add up the lifespans uh, of all the people in the Bible from Adam, because we get that, we get a record of people, until we kind of hit some people in a historical situation we know about, like this guy lived under this king of Babylon, and then we can kind of work backwards. And these, these folks would date the earth conservatively a little bit older than 10,000 years, right? But what about the dinosaurs, right? What about the fossils? Well, those that hold this view take into the account that, hey, there was a worldwide flood underneath Noah, and there are some very visible flaws in radiocarbon dating. I mean, people have written whole books on that. So uh, some really smart people that hold to this position say, yeah, we, we, they make it fit with the data that's available to us. Uh, there's another view maybe you haven't heard of. It's called uh, the gap theory. In fact, if you have your Bibles, let's just read the first three verses of Genesis. These people uh, say there's a gap between verse two and verse three. And maybe you've never seen this before or read Genesis this slowly or intently. But it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then verse three, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And so we don't know how long that situation in verse one and two lasted. Could be thousands of years, could be millions of years. We don't know. We have no idea. But people that hold that view say, if you have this view, this is how it fits with the data. And then some people don't think that Genesis uh, 1 through 3 was meant to be read literally. And don't hear what I'm not saying. They're not, thinking, they're not saying it's not true. They're just saying you would read poetry different than you would read like a gospel. And we do. We read the Psalms different than we do Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, so they say the author's intent wasn't to give a science lesson, but to ground their readers in some theological truths. Like God's the creator. Um, humans are different than animals. Marriage was God's idea. Here's how sin entered the world. And so they would say it's not a literal 24-hour day, 
That word in Hebrew can mean day or age. So this is known as the day-age theory. Peter says to the Lord, a thousand years is like a day and a day is like a thousand years. And so for these people, they don't believe in evolution, but they say, how old's the earth? Well, however old scientists are saying it right now, right? And so this view fits as well. Now, in all these cases, there's no direct conflict with the scientific data that we have. All of those fit. There will be proponents of every single one of these views that will try to convince you that theirs is the one true Christian view of evolution and creation. Uh, and I'm sure I'm gonna get emails about not picking one and just preaching that for the next 25 minutes. I'm not gonna do that. Um, if you do hold to one of these views and you wanna send me an email that's 10 pages long with all the research, I promise you, I've read it. I've read so many boring books for this series. So you can if you want to, but... Um, if you're really on the fence about this, I would say these views, they're kind of like family spats, kind of like intervarsity stuff. And I don't want that to, to distract you from the main question. So does data that we have disprove the biblical account? No, uh, nothing actually rules it out. Well, is there anything in the data that rules out naturalism? Again, um, not explicitly, but I do think that there are certain things that would cast doubt on naturalism in the scientific data that we have. Okay, let's, let's go back to middle school. You guys remember a guy named Charles Darwin? If you went to a Christian school, you're like, who? Uh, if you went to public school, uh, you learned about evolution and Charles Darwin went to the Galapagos Islands. This is very simplification, but he saw like a tortoise on one island that looked different than a tortoise on the other island. And then he noticed, well, that island's got a lot more sand and it's flat. And this island has a lot more trees and it's got a lot more hills. And so they're adapting to their environments. And he saw this in a lot of different species. And so what he was doing is he was witnessing a micro evolution or the effects of it with his own hands, with his own, you can't see it with your hands, with his eyes. And the story he hypothesized to interpret that observation was the theory of evolution. So you guys ever heard of the tree of life? where a very, very simple organism slowly evolved um, through random chance and natural selection into all the different life forms that we have, the plants and the fungi and the animals and all that sort of stuff. So it's a slow and gradual evolution of all of life from a single simple organism. Well, do the facts that we have, the data, fit with that? And uh, it should. <laughs> It should, the way the world talks about it. It should be very, very black and white. But more and more, it's kind of coming up short. In fact, the fossil record, um, you would expect to see slow and steady development of new species from the simple all the way up to the complex, right? And you would expect to see a lot of transitional fossils. So transitions between this species and this species, right? You would expect to see some weird animals that haven't stuck around. Um, but we actually see something very, very different. We don't see the slow, gradual development. We, we see a new species bursting into existence almost in a moment, I mean, geologically, and then nothing for a long stretch. And then we see a ton more new species bursting into existence and then nothing for a long time. And when they burst into existence, it's not just complex organisms, it's simple and complex. And it's a mix of simple and, you hear me on this? It's called punctiliar evolution. The most famous example is the Cambrian explosion. This is not what Darwin would have guessed. It's not a single tree of life. There's like a lots of them spread out and they happen kind of in one moment in time. We also don't see one single uncontested example 
of a transitional fossil, a transition fossil. There's lots of hopeful ones, but there's not one where every single scientist is like, all right, you got me. That's clearly a transitional fossil. And these are scientists that really want evolution to be true, right? We also know more and more about what happens inside of a cell, way more than Darwin did. In fact, uh, the, the cell is kind of known as Darwin's black box. There's a book by the name of that. I highly recommend it. But we know about the incredible complexity and kind of intricacy of what actually goes into cellular and DNA replication. So when Darwin kind of hypothesized, yeah, so there was this organism it did, couldn't see, so it slowly developed these photoreceptive cells that kind of clumped together and kind of went towards the skull and the skull kind of indented and over generations and over generations, just randomly eyeballs were formed. Like scientists hear that now and they're like, I don't, I don't know how possible that actually is. There's actually something called Leventhal's paradox that mathematically proves that kind of a simple thing that the, the cell does, it's protein folding. I'm acting like I know what I'm talking about. I'm not, but there's a scientist over there that does. He told me about it, but you can look it up. It's true. Uh, the, the, in order to get proteins, the amino acids have to fold in certain ways. Well, we know how many folds there are. And so a mathematician took that information and said, hey, how long would this take to, to evolve randomly, even if it evolved every like nanosecond? And he figured out mathematically, in order for that to, to happen, it would take longer than the universe has existed. And life, like relatively speaking, is pretty new, right? So it seems like mathematically impossible. Anthony Flew, he was a leader of the philosophical atheist movement for decades. He actually became a believer in God because of this. He was invited to a debate. He was supposed to debate, to debate the atheist position and he got up on stage and he's like, surprise, I believe in God. And uh, he wrote a book called There Is a God in 2007. And he says this, I now believe there is a God. I now think it, the evidence, the data, does point to a creative intelligence almost entirely because of the DNA investigations. What I think the DNA material has done is that it is shown by the almost unbelievable complexity of arrangements which are needed to produce life. That intelligence must have been involved in getting these extraordinarily diverse elements to work together. And there's so many more things that we could talk about. Um, one of those things being the Big Bang. Um, you guys have heard of the Big Bang. When I was growing up, Christians liked to trash the Big Bang. Like, that's preposterous. But what you have to understand is that when this was first proposed as a theory, the class lesson's almost over. Stay with me. Uh, when this was first proposed as a, a theory, a lot of scientists didn't like it. They thought the, the universe had always existed. But based on Einstein's theory of relativity, where the universe is expanding, you rewind it, well, it's got to decrease and decrease. And so now scientists are pretty sure what, what, the, what they would say is that everything that's ever existed started in a singularity, which is shorthand for we have no clue and it's immensely crazy. And out of that nothing, in a split second, everything came, matter and time and all that sort of stuff that made our universe. And when that was first proposed, there's a lot of scientists that said, that, that sounds a lot like in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? God said, let there be light, and bang, there was light. I love how Robert Jastrow puts it. He was the head of the Goddard Institute for Space Study at NASA in 20 years. He says this. He says, now we see how the astronomical evidence supports the biblical view of the origin of the world. The details differ, but the essential elements in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. The chain of events leading to a man commenced suddenly, 
and sharply at a definite moment in time in a flash of light and energy. This is an exceedingly strange development, unexpected by all but the theologians. They've always accepted the word of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. At this moment, it seems as though science will never be able to raise the curtain on the mystery of creation. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. He pulls himself over the final rock and he's greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries, right? See, from the data, uh, far from the data being overwhelmingly in favor of naturalism, I think what we're finding is that it's kind of, it's kind of pointing towards Christianity. It's almost as if Psalm 19 is true, where it says the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. But there's more that should cause us to doubt naturalism. In order to do this, you have to step away from science. There's a lot of things that science just can't tell us. Naturalism proclaims to be a theory that explains everything. We can just take natural forces, we can take math, we can just take evolution, and that explains everything that we experience, everything that we feel as human beings. But there's a huge amount of things that it can't. It can't explain or it can't account for. A science alone can't account for beauty. Can't measure that. Uh, how we're moved by the side of the Grand Canyon or a beautiful sunset. Science can't explain why two plus two equals four. It just presupposes it's true. We can't, we don't know why that's true. It just is. It can't explain why we feel emotions while we look at art or why we listen to music or why we fall in love. And, and one of the biggest things that it can't account for is something that has just, has just rushed to the forefront of our culture. And that's this internal moral compass that every single one of us has. I mean, you, you've, get on Facebook, you watch the news, what are people saying? You're wrong, I'm right. That's horrible, that's good, but science can't account for that. The fact that every human being intrinsically knows that certain things are right and wrong just kind of flies in the face of naturalism. Now, some will say, no, 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 you have these feelings of right and wrong because culture forced it on you. Like this is just cultural stuff, like other stuff. This is just formed by um, the world that we uh, grew up in. Well, Yale actually did a study. It's a cool study. They took six-month-old little babies. Now, can six-month-old talk? No. Can you talk a six-month-old into anything? No. Can you kind of form their character in six months? No. And so they brought them into a room and they gave them a puppet show. And uh, one of the puppets was super nice and he would like laugh and he would share his toys and he would give them kisses and he would do nice stuff. And then there was a bad puppet and the bad puppet would like yell and would hit the other puppet and would steal toys and would do all sorts of bad stuff. So after the puppet show, the researcher would come in and it would offer the six month old babies right? Six month old, the good puppet. And when they did that, the babies would smile and they would want to hug the puppet and they want to pet the puppet. They want to share its food with the puppet. But then when they showed them the bad puppet, guess what they did? They recoiled and they would hide their face and their cry. And some would even hit it like babies knew that puppet needed a good whooping even at like six months old, right? And these are babies, but it's because morality is a deep part of who, you, who we are. 
And what we see all on social media and the news and in politics is we see people just proclaiming there's no such thing as right and wrong. There's no such thing as objective standards. Everyone decides what's right and wrong for themselves. I shouldn't judge anyone. I shouldn't force my opinions on anyone. And in the next moment, what are we all saying? What do they say? Racism is wrong because it is. Sexism is morally wrong because it is. Inequality shouldn't happen because it shouldn't. Equality is right. Freedom is right. This is right. This is wrong. I'm forcing this view on me. It's because we can say it as much as we want. There's no such thing as right and wrong, but we feel the exact opposite deep in our hearts and it just comes out. And naturalists know this. And they've tried to answer this question in a hundred different ways but they've just failed. I went through a lot of them. Um, and uh, one way is to say we got our sense of right and wrong as the product of evolution. That our ancestors that valued um, sacrifice, that valued love, that valued equality, that valued like the dignity of an individual, those were the ones that survived as a greater rate than those that didn't. And that's why we have these morals, just kind of like a fluke in the genetic code. But I mean, self-sacrifice? What kind of coyote is going to survive on that, right? The freedom of the individual. These aren't, these aren't morals that would lead um, to um, actually survival of the fittest. And why would our ancestors have any more moral feelings at all? Again, a lot of animals don't. And there have been many attempts to explain morality in purely naturalistic terms, but they've all failed. And here's the big one. Even if you say, as a lot of naturalists do, there's no such thing as right and wrong. It's a fluke of the genetic code. You can't live that way. If I punched you in the face, you get angry. When someone holds a gun to a little kid's head, you're going to want to stop it, right? Everyone agrees the Holocaust is wrong. But in a naturalistic worldview, all you can talk about is preference. All you can say is, well, I personally don't prefer genocide, but I can't tell anyone it's wrong. And don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that atheists or natural, naturalists are immoral people. In fact, I found the opposite. The ones that I know have been extremely moral. They love their spouse well. They sacrifice for their children. They're generous with their time and resources. They serve the community. But in their worldview, they can't explain why they act that way or why they should tell anyone to act in any sort of way. Remember how I said the beliefs that we have strongly influence the beliefs that we form? I think that when you get into the weeds of this conversation, what you don't find is a scientific-minded person following the data and just coming to the natural conclusion that God doesn't exist and the religious person turning their back on all the facts and just wishing there was a, a lovable guy in the sky that we call God. What you actually see is different people with different experiences and different beliefs looking at the same data and believing by faith that their conclusion is right. Both groups are wishing. That's what I'm saying. Everyone's taking a leap of faith. And I like Thomas Nagel. He's, he's an atheist because he admits this. He says this in his book, The Last Word. He says, I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. So when you come to the scientific data, hoping that there isn't a God, guess what you're going to find? No God. 
And I get it. To admit that there is a God in heaven is to admit that certain things exist, like sin, like judgment, like there is an authority figure that I have to submit my life to, that I have to give up certain freedoms and take on the yoke of Jesus. And that's scary for a lot of people. That's not attractive to a lot of people. And so to get rid of those, they throw away this idea of the existence of God. But when you throw that away, you also throw away hope. And you throw away forgiveness. And you throw away transformation. And I think you throw away a worldview that really makes sense out of the fullness of the experience of life. And God knows this. He said 2,000 years ago through Paul, they, human beings, know the truth about God because he's made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God's made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give thanks to him. And they begin to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. And as a result, their minds become dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles or scientific theories, I would say. So I don't think the hurdle to belief is data. I think for a lot of us, the hurdle to belief is, is pride or maybe experience where Christians hurt you, or maybe some deep suffering that you can't account for. But I don't think it's the data. What all of us have to do when all is said and done is we have to look at the data, but also everything that we experience as human beings, everything that we experience from our longings and our desires, these feelings of purposefulness, and, uh, and we have to say, which one is more likely? Is it more likely that I'm just a clump of cells no different from any other life form and came through random chance and natural selection with no purpose and no meaning whatsoever and not a whole lot of data to back that up? Or is it more likely that I was created by a personal God in his image and the reason I have these dreams and these hopes and these feelings, like I do have meaning and like I do have purpose um, is because I'm, I bear a resemblance to him. Like does this, the story that Darwin tells really fit my experience or do the words of the Bible make more sense? And I'll close with this. It's a quote by A.N. Wilson, who grew up a Christ follower, um, became a courageous atheist because all of his friends in college were, and then he came back to the faith and he said this, no, the existence of language is one of the many phenomena of which love and music are the two strongest, as well as morals, which suggest human beings are very much more than collections of meat. They convinced me that we're spiritual beings, and that the religion of the incarnation asserting that God made humanity in his image and continually restores humanity in his image is simply true as a working blueprint for life, as a template against which to measure experience. It fits. It fits. So hopefully this has been helpful, but I just want to leave you with this. No amount of scientific data is ever going to make you believe in God, just like no amount of scientific data can ever really prove the non-existence of God. That's a conversation that really comes down to a guy named Jesus. <laughs> That's what the conversation really needs to be about. Was there a guy that lived 2,000 years ago that died and then rose from the grave? And if that happened, 
That changes this whole conversation. And we're going to go way into depth on that next week. So come back. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Um, Thank you for keeping the people's brains in this room working for the past 30 minutes. Um, I mean, I just pray that if anyone walked in to one of our physical campuses or tuned in to hear this sermon doubting, that by your spirit they'd walk out or they'd log off doubting those doubts instead of doubting your goodness. Father, all that we see in creation, it wasn't meant to dispel belief, but it's really a hymn of praise to you and to your glory and to your power. So Father, I pray that this just gives us even more confidence in the life that we've based upon your son, Jesus Christ. And it's his beautiful name that we pray. Amen. i
Thank you for listening to the Hope Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this message and encourage you to share it with your friends and family. If you live in the greater Raleigh-Durham area in North Carolina, we'd love to meet you at one of our weekend gatherings. For campus locations, service times, and information on our children and student environments, check out gethope.net. To make sure you don't miss our next message, please take a moment to hit the subscribe button. We would like to invite you to support what we are doing by visiting gethope.net slash give. Through generosity of people like you, Hope can run programs like our food pantry, homework club, project classroom, and many more.